0: This is Famous Lost Words, and I'm Christopher Ward. And I'm Tom Jokic. Welcome to the show. We have a ripping good collection of interviews today from the archives. And thank you to the keeper of the keys, the creator of the show, my friend Tom Jokic. Well, thanks, Christopher. You know, it is so much fun week after week.
1: You know, you'd think after having listened to many of these interviews over the years that I would have made a huge dent in the collection. And I've got to tell you, I have not. Because every once in a while, I'll go... Oh my God, I haven't even looked up Paul Simon yet, right? And Paul well, Simon might be one, one of my top five artists of all time. It didn't even occur to me because we I've got lists upon lists, and I think I told you in the last episode, some of them aren't even labeled properly,
0: right? Like Bob Segar, <laughs> who, who we're going to be hearing. Well, it was a smoking good interview, right? <laughs> so uh, how many years of, of, of archives are we talking about? Well, we're talking probably
1: 50. Yeah. Wow and so and but again some of them aren't even dated like I mean I've got clips of I've got clips of Bill Haley now we're not really normally gonna go f- that far back yeah um, but, but why go- not
0: <laughs> if, we, <laughs> if, we can. Well,
1: if we can if we can if we can if we can make sense of it absolutely we will but anyway uh, yeah so they, they just go far back and um, and it's so much fun to listen to uh, the really old ones and also the really new ones you know Taylor Swift Kelly Clarkson mostly it's
0: 80s stuff today. Uh, that's, we, have, uh, that's true, we have yes. we have Kate Bush, a rare uh, visit from Cape Bush to North America. Yes. And we've got something from Chrissy Hind. Oh, she's great. Just like tons. She brings the tood. Well, she? She does.
1: And you know, it's Love funny because I'm playing you the best parts of the interview because the very
0: beginning of the interview, she was given
1: nothing back to the interviewer. So it's not really worth listening to, but I can tell you it was a little bit tough to listen to because <laughs> she's just, she's got like the, the interviewer says, uh, yeah, some of these songs are a little bit sexual. And she's kind of going, no, they're not. What makes you think that? And you're kind of going, oh boy. Back away from the <laughs> microphone interviewer. And then he goes, well, this song. And she kind of goes... Oh, yeah, that is sexual. (laughs) And so so, (laughs) as contrarian as she can sometimes be, she's uh, she's also terrific. It makes for a great interview, though. for, For sure. And she tells... The she just hints at some trouble that she got into right around the time of this interview, but she doesn't say what it is, and neither does the interviewer. And I'm so I have I am all over the internet looking for it, and I found out what it was. Mm -hmm. So, what she only alludes to in the interview, we will reveal in full on this show today. Well, there's
0: probably more than one incident that. We well, yeah. could refer to. but yes. Okay. I'll I'll
1: hang in for yes. that. Well, it ended and, in the back seat of a cop car, and that's the fun part. That's where the fun oh, begins. Oh. <laughs> okay.
0: So no McDonald's was not involved in the story. That's okay, That's, true. that's good to know.
1: And then, of course, we end the show with the, the wisdom, wisdom of Dave. Dave. More oh, more words of wisdom from David Lee Roth yeah. at his most Daveness. Okay. But and let's, where are we starting, Tom? We are starting in 1979 and 1980 with the police so right. we've got a couple of interviews from though from that era and this is around the time of the release of regatta de blanc and zenyatta mandata first of all we're going to start with Stuart copeland the drummer and founder of the band and i think in every interview that he does he always kind of always kind of makes sure that you know that this is his band to start um <laughs> but he really does he really is terrific in these uh in these clips and here he describes how the band first found success Based, of course, on one
2: song. There was my brother, who Miles, who manages a lot of other groups and has, you know, he's involved in the music industry. He heard Roxanne and said, "Wait a minute, guys, this song, uh, you won't be able to do this justice on your own label because this could be a really big worldwide smash song, and you wouldn't be, you know, on your little label, you just won't be able to handle what this song is going to do for you." Distribution wise, yeah, right. And so he took just that song to A and M Records and made a deal for one single. And after that, for another single, which Can't Stand Losing It. And by that time, we'd had two singles with the company we knew who we were involved with, and we were prepared to do a, a record deal, you know, a contract for albums and so on. Um, by which time, we'd already finished our album. We'd established our own identity, our own direction, exactly what we wanted to do, and they were prepared to take that instead of um, signing a group on spec and putting all sorts of money in. They have to choose a producer, and it's their project, and we're working for them. They, they took us as we were, and, and we're prepared to uh, sell our records, and that's the way it's been ever since.
3: Was it easier putting the band together and putting the music together than it was to gain an initial acceptance in Britain? You had trouble there for a while, didn't you?
2: Uh, the trouble that we had was because the, in the beginning, those kids were um, directed, or the, the press... Dominated a lot of the thought, the music press. We were very adventurous at that time. That the press in England always have been. They're very quick to spot new trends. They're always a little bit ahead of, of the mass market. Mm-hmm. That's why they're really good. They're very bitchy, and they're really, re- you know, they they really like to carve. They groups make up. or break
3: people. Definitely. No, they don't. They, no, they you don't they, think they, so? they didn't
2: help us break. In fact, they no. carved us up all the way along the line, <laughs> and we're still the biggest group in the country right now. Right. Or we've accomplished. Why did that, that happen then? That happened because they kind of misunderstood us in the beginning they they you know like they understand us now and they they're they're with us now um, because in the beginning we were obviously not a punk group we were not playing the 3 minute songs you know about politics about you know that we had you know we broke all the punk rules but we were there interested in those kids and the kids appreciated that we were interested in them and they, and we built up a following with them which is why we've gotten to where we've gotten when did you feel the tide
3: turning in britain then when, 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 was, there, when w- was there any specific point? Just before we left point. for
2: America. Really? We had released Roxanne, which made no impression on the charts whatsoever, and sold about as well as our first record on Illegal had. But for A&M, with their budget, they're an actual real company with lots of promotion men to uh, whose salary they have to pay and everything, for them, like the 15,000 record sales was a dismal failure. But it accomplished one important fact which was, that it established the fact that we're not a bandwagon band trying to play punk music for the punks. We're just a new band playing new music to the punks. Because Roxanne couldn't be called a punk single any way, shape or anything, but it's obviously a new sound by a new group. Um, and that made people in the, in, the, in the media and in just all, all the kind of uh, opinion makers, uh, it made them take a second look at us and it made them start to appreciate us.
3: The aspects of having money you have money now. I think I've ridden a melody well, maker where you, you out and out admitted you guys are fairly rich because of you know, the way you've handled yourselves managerially. Well,
2: the fact that has on our music is that, um, that it means that we're free. That means that the record company has not got a fortune invested in us which they need to make back. Um, so when it comes to making a decision about where we're going to be when, we make the decision. They can't say to us, look, we've invested this much money, so we're deciding where you're going to tour because we're paying for the tour. Uh, There's no element of that because we're paying for the tour. In fact, we're not paying for the tour. We're making the profits on the tour because we've got it under control. Um, And so we've ended up very wealthy. And also, artistically, this means because we have our economy under control, this group was set up not to be... A mass, you know, you know, a really big commercial item. It was set up to be free of having to make money. You know, we were set up of so having we,
3: to make money, and there's exactly the key. right.
2: Okay. We could we could make a good living out of being a cult group. We don't need a mass following to to support ourselves to pay our rent and stuff because we're you know session like we did for the first year. We paid for our life with session work and so on. And like the, the the famous Wrigley's commercial where we all dyed our hair blonde. That was to pay the rent so that we could keep the music free um and when we you know like the it's not so much the richer we get we're already rich and we you know like we can breathe easy for years but the thing that gets us off in life is is experimenting with music and we're now totally free to do that without any commercial considerations at all okay so there you go so that's a really
1: interesting point so there's a band that you know worked hard to um be smart with their money and now they're starting to make it, and that money to them doesn't represent financial gain. It represents artistic
0: freedom. Well, it's not the end of the road. It's the access to the road It mm-hmm. gives them the opportunity to be, you know, as you say, creatively free and kind of do what they want.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. so that's, that, I love how matter-of-fact he is. I know. Everything is couched in a, in a little bit of a boast with Stuart. Okay, <laughs> He does not lack for confidence. No, he
0: does not. Absolutely. And he of course, also happens to be one of the most extraordinary drummers in
1: the world. And that's true as well. And, uh, you know, when I first met him, I think I, I may have told you this a few weeks ago, but he was in a studio here at the radio station and I am like... A huge police fan, and I walk into the studio, and I looked at him, and I go, oh, that's great. Here's the guy who made me give up drumming, because there was just (laughs) no way I was ever going to, to become anywhere near what he became. You could have had uh, other heroes. How about Ringo? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. But hey, you could do worse than aim for Ringo, that's for sure. Hey, this is Famous Lost Words. If you want to get caught up with past episodes, you can go to iHeartRadio.com. You can also download the iHeartRadio app or listen to us on iTunes. Okay, so we've heard from Stuart Copeland. Up next, we hear from Sting. Great song. You know, I think that that's one of those songs that... Hasn't aged well for a lot of people, but I still love it. Da-do-do-da-da-da-da, 1981. And Christopher, you and I are gonna actually going to have a conversation and probably an argument one day about the value, about the genius of those lyrics. A lot of people hate those lyrics. I love them, and I will explain why someday. Okay, but first, hold that thought. First, let's get back to an interview with Sting and Stuart Copeland together this time.
4: On the first album, Sting, on Atlantis St. Day More, you, you wrote a lot of the material. Then on the second album, uh, Stuart, a lot of tunes coming from yourself and, and, and Andy and so on. Why so much influence, Sting, on the first album from you? And then we see it uh, diversifying again. The rest of the fellas sort of jumping into the songwriting end of it. Was that planned? Well, during
2: the, for, during Atlanta's period, I was busy managing the group booking trucks and hiring roadies and doing all that stuff. Meanwhile Sting yeah, is sitting sure. at home contemplating his his navel Doing
5: the important stuff. Doing
2: the important stuff which is writing tunes.
5: huh. Because uh- when we
2: first formed the group, Sting didn't have any tunes written that were under fifteen minutes long. Then <laughs> so it took a while for that to start happening.
6: What is the most rewarding thing about this sudden popularity?
5: The confirmation that what I what I used to believe as a starving songwriter, that one day my songs would actually be Appreciated by a, a very large number of people. That's that's a very very satisfying feeling because I knew that they were good I mean, I'm sure there are a million songwriters out there who feel the same thing keep thinking that same thing because it does work Perseverance yeah.
6: you have played some very out-of-the-way places sting uh, whose idea was it to go that route? I mean Bombay and uh, well, Bangkok
5: basically the, the, Everything else has been done right people say they, they've conquered the world you know the, the Beatles yes sticks they haven't. They've conquered North America, they've, they've conquered Europe. Conquering the world is an entirely different market. You know, you're, you're talking about India, you're talking about Bangkok, you're talking about South America. We're doing all of those places. We're adventurists, we enjoy, we enjoy travelling, we like, we like seeing the world. Why not? There's no financial... Um, benefits to be gained from it it's just experience for me you know we drink it in
6: did you make any concessions or changes on the zenyatta mandata lp in order to uh, facilitate getting american airplay because you didn't get a whole lot prior to this tour
5: no the the prime consideration when we make an album is that we enjoy ourselves we don't actually think of markets if we did that we'd probably produce something that sounded like the bg's uh (laughs) No, we, we we enjoy the music we make. What comes out is, is a mishmash of things we enjoy. There is no real master plan to uh, be incredibly commercial. It's an accident that we are commercial, if anything. I just happen to like the music that a lot of other people like at the same time. I'm sure it's part of the subconscious creativity. You know, you write a song and it's, it's fairly... Uh, inherent in you that you, you know what's commercial anyway, that you don't have to sort of plan it, you know, so oh, this will be good, they like this, the radio programmers will love this. No, I enjoy what we do.
1: There you go. Okay, <laughs> Sting. Was that completely necessary? We talked about the, uh, the Bee Gees in a very recent episode, and uh, and we're fans, so there's no need to be mean. Yeah, the Bee Gees
0: were kind of like everybody's pincushion there for a very long time. I mean, yeah. I understand... Now, particularly in retrospect, why they were so defensive in interviews? Mm-hmm. I mean, they were taking it on the chin on a regular basis. Yeah. I mean, why somebody like Sting felt he had to slam the Bee Gees? I don't know, but you know, I mean, they're excellent musicians too, just in a very different genre. Yeah, exactly. All. But I love that the contrast between Copeland and Sting is hilarious. You know, the sort of Copeland, no nonsense, cut to the chase. Sting, so discussive. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You know, the other person who probably
1: took more grief even than um, the Bee Gees was Phil Collins, right? Yeah, Phil As, took it on the chin, He too. took it, and he took it very personally. He It hit him hard. Um, if you read a few interviews with him over the years, he'll talk about the fact that he was affected by driving through the U.S. and hearing the, the DJ on the radio station saying, this is a Phil Collins free weekend, Right And they don't mean we're giving Ooh. away free Phil Collins tickets. No no this means we are never playing Pouch. We're not playing him. And he was really hurt by that. So it is interesting that these guys take shots at each other, but boy, you throw it back at them, and they'll probably be pretty thin-skinned. you know
0: He was guarded when I interviewed him, Phil, Phil? Collins. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, we had him into the studio into the studio with us, and he was terrific. Like he was when he was on the air, he was very friendly, but he was really quiet off the air. Now, is yeah. this recently,
0: like in um, association with his uh, autobiography?
1: No, no, no. This wasn't very recently at all. Um, uh, that's a book I want to read. Have you read it? No. Okay, I definitely want to read it because I was a huge fan, especially that first solo album. But anyway, we're getting way off topic, and we will hear from Phil Collins very soon. Okay. But when we talked to him, it was probably about fifteen years ago, and uh, and he was terrific. Okay. Now back to the police. Uh, this is an. Interesting clip with Sting talking about how the band toured the world by being fiscally smart.
5: It's always been our philosophy to. uh Not to to go to excess as far as touring costs goes. One, there's only three of us. We don't cost as much as a a large band. Every man in the crew is absolutely essential. We don't have a masseur. We don't have a doctor or a chiropractor or a wardrobe mistress or a guru travelling with us. Some bands do. That's, That's where the costs arrive, excess. We don't have vast riders that, you know, demand five cases of champagne and uh, caviar and everything. We're actually fairly economic and logistic in the way we tour. We like to make a profit at the end of a tour. The old idea in the past was to spend as much as possible on the tour. The record company would subsidize you, and all you were doing was promoting the record. I think that is uh, a little short-sighted in view of the present economic climate of the world. We are the band of the 80s. The 80s is a time of shrinking economies and we will be still touring when when the gigantic, you know, wasters of money are... uh at home, wondering why they can't get a gig anywhere.
1: <laughs> so, Okay, so he's talking about these big bands not being able to get a gig anywhere, which yeah. of course really isn't, isn't true, but uh, but he certainly does make his point. And that's one of the things that we were talking about a second ago with what Stuart was saying about um, you know, the money. Uh, they manage their money really well, and because of that
0: financial freedom, they get the artistic freedom. Well, it didn't hurt that Stuart's brother Miles was... A manager right. and a label owner and and you know had some business sense
1: that's right and and of course miles is the person that Stuart was talking about in that very very first clip a few minutes ago when he said uh, miles heard Roxanne and said oh I'm shopping this around because
0: this is a hit as a single that's right it's it's that's so weird to me that mm-hmm. whole I, I don't think I'd thought of it in those terms Every, everything then was about albums mm-hmm. And it didn't have to be a concept album, but you had to have an idea of what you were doing. You were making an artistic statement with a group of songs, whereas now we are so firmly in the singles era. Yes, It's all for just sure. one song at a time. For sure. That's a bit of a drag, but that is, an, again, is another uh, discussion for another day.
1: Okay, so just when you think Sting <laughs> is capable of being reasonable, here he is being his most posh. In fact... He's his typical imposhable self, as I like to say, when he talks just a little too seriously about the importance of pop music.
5: The attitude in the 60s was, was to create pop music. Mm-hmm. And what we've done is we've made pop music, once again, respectable. In the 70s, it lost all of its respectability. We had purveyors of pop who were just plastic creations of gigantic you know, record companies. and They weren't real. Now, more intelligent, uh, thoughtful artists are, are into making pop. And mm-hmm. I think pop's very important.
0: <laughs> okay. There you go, Posh Sting. There you go. Anyway. Mr. Sumner.
1: <laughs> so there you have it 1979, 1980, fairly early career interviews with Sting and Stuart Copeland from the police. You know that band only made 5 albums and they peaked with their last one and it was such a drag that they that they split up but I completely understand why Sting had to put up with the complaints of two other people when he was you know truly the genius behind that group with with most of the melodies with all of the words pretty much and he had to take it on the chin from these other guys who didn't want to do certain things with his songs and so you do understand why he broke away from them but boy did i miss the police because with synchronicity synchronicity was so incredible in my opinion and i was a huge fan Obviously, and when they when they split, I was just shocked. I you know I remember it vividly. I was working at a radio station then, and I'd heard that they split up, and I didn't want to believe it. Um, and uh, and I was heartbroken. And you would always hope that they would get back together again. And they tried briefly too, but that was a that fell by the wayside. You mean the world tour? Oh no, no, the world tour. I saw that too, and that mm. the, that was terrific. That but that was only what seven eight years ago. Yeah, the, the big reunion tour. But I meant. Get together to you know make a new album, um, you know shortly after Synchronicity. I thought their breakup was only going to be temporary, but then Sting came out with two excellent albums, Dream of the Blue Turtles, and um, and Nothing Like the Sun, which were fantastic, almost as good as anything the the Police ever did. And then his output, I think, trailed off after that. It wasn't quite as good
0: because he became full of himself. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people who are going to give you some serious argument about. You know, not that Sting is overvalued in in any respect. I mean, he is the creative center of it as the as the main songwriter in the mm-hmm. band, for sure. That that's where the sound derives from. But in terms of the musical identity, the alchemy that was the Police, you needed those three unique individuals to create that, and that was the launching pad, and that's what you know gave Sting access to the world. I agree with you a hundred percent. Maybe I didn't uh, express it well enough, but what I meant by
1: You know, when he came out with his first two solams, they were so good it almost justified what he had done by leaving the police. But after a while, you realize that he really missed those guys. Mm. It, it gave him, it tightened up his music. It gave them a little bit more structure. It, it limited the songs to about three minutes, Sting. And, um, you know, it didn't go this on this wayward path of all the jazz influences, which sounded great in some of the songs, but then started to meander. And then he started just getting too deep and too morose and too... Two into his own head. And so I think that he really terribly missed Andy and Stewart in the long run. But right off the bat with those first two
0: solo albums, I didn't think he did. My favorite police moment, briefly. Sure. The police picnic. Mm-hmm. And I remember they did something I've never seen anybody do before or since. And that is when the intermission came, uh, they had cameras follow them off stage, <laughs> and then down the ramps and into the backstage area. And they sat and they had tea and chatted together (laughs) (laughs) amicably, I might add. That's great. And then after the intermission was over, they came back on stage and the cameras followed them out again. It was very funny.
1: That's great. The very first police picnic was in a field in uh, Oakville. And it was a mess to get out of, but it was a great day. It was one of the probably the first festival show I'd ever seen. I was 19 years old. It was 1981, and it was an amazing day. And they were fantastic. Mm. And then I saw them, I saw them in Detroit the next year, around the same tour. Um, and then I saw them in '83, I think, for the final Police picnic. You're a police geek. I am a police geek, and like I think I've seen. Sting and Prince the most times So I think mm. I've, seen, I've seen Sting six times With and without the police And that's how many times I saw Prince
7: in pocket.
0: You're listening to Famous Lost Words, a deep dive
1: into the musical archives. I'm Christopher Ward. And I'm Tom Jokic, and right now we're going back to about 1979, 1980, and I'm sorry for being so vague on the dates, but I gotta tell you, a lot of these interviews are not labeled at all. There's one one recently, I was just in the car literally listening to a CD, and it said, I have no idea who these people are. (laughs) That's what the person who who dubbed it across was.
0: Well, I got a bunch of photographs um, some years after I left much and I mean fully I would say 20% of them I looked at and had no idea who I was smiling and sitting beside with their arm on my shoulder oh that's hilarious I should, that... we should post them and people yes. can, can guess can who they are try to get maybe I'm sure they'll know
1: yeah yeah, we've got. I, feel I can, bad,
0: though. I'm sure it's like famous people. and yes. I'm just an idiot, right?
1: So yes, yeah, so I'm guessing that this uh, particular interview is from about 1979, 1980, and it's uh, and it's Chrissy Hind of the Pretenders.
6: The song "Brass in Pocket," is that an expression that should mean something as is?
7: Brass in pocket is a is a a North England expression, which um, means uh, when you well, if you got some money in your pocket, some brass in pocket.
6: The song is awfully um, self-confident. It's uh, almost a boast, but, and yet somehow you get the feeling that um, it's a front. Did you have any special significance in, in writing that song that way, or is I, did I interpret it the correct way?
7: Uh, it's a real lightweight, throwaway pop song, that is. It's, it's kind of a, a piss take. I don't know if you use that expression here. What's it's it mean? A, um, uh, not tongue-in-cheek, um, but um, a little bit. Uh, I don't know if you can really translate that expression, just to take the mick a little bit, to have a go at yourself a little bit.
6: You have been labeled a new wave band. How do you feel about that?
7: Well, new wave is a label that um, I think record companies in the, in the media came up with because uh, they thought punk might might have sounded a bit dirty, and it didn't really apply to a lot of the newer bands that were coming out. I mean, you couldn't have really called the Cars a punk band, could you? They have been. Well, they're not. I know. So. I guess for lack of a, of a better term, God knows I could have thought of millions, but New Wave is the handle.
6: What would you like to call yourself, a rock and roll band?
7: Pop band.
1: So we also asked Chrissy Hind if she saw longevity with this band.
7: I think we're gonna be uh, around for a while, but I like, when I say I like that, I mean, I like things, I like singles for a start. This album orientated rock thing is a real turnoff to me. I like singles, I like, I like the idea of being able to come out with, um, a one-off single, like, mm-hmm. can you remember, for example, Aaron Neville, Tell It Like It Is? Mm-hmm. I think that was the only song he ever did that I can that I know of. Me too. And that was a great song. Now, see, if someone is obliged to go out and make a whole album, then it's not, you don't get that sort of, that freshness and the enthusiasm where someone can go out and do a, a one-off great single.
6: The latest Rolling Stone has a story about what happened in Memphis. I don't know whether you've seen it.
7: I didn't want to ask you I about it. I saw it. it. I would, yeah, I don't really want to harm you know, I don't want to make a big deal out of that because it wasn't much of a big deal. It's unfortunate that that got printed as far as I'm concerned. But I would like to say that I wasn't blocking an aisle. I was just sitting in a, in a chair at a table minding my own business. And it wasn't my fault. Really, it wasn't.
0: Well, she doesn't want to talk about it, but you do. <laughs>
1: For sure. I love that. I love it at the end. Uh, yes, I'd care not to discuss it. But um, I did a deep dive into the Google archives about the Memphis venue that she was talking about, right. where she said I was only, blo- I was only sitting in my chair wasn't disturbing anyone. Anyway, she was taken away by the police and I do know that uh she was arrested for uh, disorderly conduct. The funny part is is that when she was in the police car, she ended up kicking out the rear window of the cop car. Yeah, that's never a good idea. Like nothing good can ever happen from kicking out the window of a cop car.
0: No, you're going to ruin a perfectly <laughs> good pair of shoes, right? <laughs> Yes. Wow. But that's a career builder.
1: Okay. So credibility in the rock
0: world. Yeah. Yes.
1: Yeah. Totally. But you know, those pop songs that she did, and she describes herself as pop in in a part of that interview, and and it's true. Like in that day, an artist like that was not afraid to refer to herself or her band as a pop band, Um, and many people kind of see her as this kind of ultimate rocker chick, and. And, boy, could she rock. But, you know, some of those songs... Brass and Pockets a great song. I don't know if you know the song My Baby, which is a great pop song. Middle of the Road. Middle of the Road is a bit of a rocker. Um, don't Get Me Wrong. Talk of the Town. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Those are great pop songs. And I think that... Um, people feel that pop nowadays does not have any guitar in it and I I, I suppose based on the uh, on the state of the top 40 right now they're right it doesn't have any guitars Mm. in it but boy it'd be great to have a few more guitars on the on the top 40 charts I think just like the pretenders
0: man I love those records (laughs) and those interviews it's interesting when you look back uh, on an interview you did with somebody who was you felt particularly tough just spiky yes you think oh god this really didn't go well and as you know that was my impression of my elvis costello interview and it right. wasn't until decades later right. i looked at it and went no he was great he was yes. totally entertaining i was completely uncomfortable right. but the results were great absolutely okay and did you ever get a chance to meet an interview chrissy i didn't i met her yes oh, okay poolside at the sunset marquee i believe baby <laughs> but that's another story excellent okay We are opening up the Interview Archives. This is called Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic. And I'm Christopher Ward. In 1985, Tom, Kate Bush made a rare, and I mean rare, promotional visit to North America to talk about her new album, The Hounds of Love, which actually ended up being her biggest North American release. Mm -hmm. That's given with Running Up That Hill. Yes. right. And and given that she hasn't come back, Mm -hmm. it represents an even more rare occasion. And as one of the first artists to embrace the new digital sampling technology of the era, in particular the the Fairlight synthesizer, I don't know if you remember, but she and Peter Gabriel, I think they were there for a demonstration of the equipment and literally ordered them on the spot. And Stevie Wonder was another early adopter of that. Right. Um, So she was a true groundbreaker in so many ways. Mm -hmm. Of course, I was curious about her working techniques and asked if she anguished long over making the album Hounds of Love.
8: I think so, yes. I think... um Certainly since the third album, it it has been like that. Uh, It just seems to be a long process. You go into it not expecting it to be that involved and before you know it's dragging you behind it uh, until it's finished.
4: Is that partly a result of having your own studio now? That you felt you had to sort of work out the kinks in that situation and learn to work in your own facility?
8: Yes, I think it was the last album that made me realize I needed one because I was being so prohibited by the amount of money it was costing every hour that I felt it was actually being anti-productive. To what i wanted to do we work very experimentally and it takes time so it really made sense to um get our own studio together yeah
4: i said you moved to the country fairly recently is that part of the process of building a home studio as well did that all come part and parcel
8: it did really it was the kind of um, reorganization i wanted to do between the last album and this where i moved from the city to the country we got the studio together and uh, i just took some time to get back into training that kind of thing I think I made some of my best decisions during that time.
4: Are you becoming more reclusive as a result?
8: I think I have um, extremes where I'm very reclusive while I'm working and then totally non-reclusive when I come out to promote and uh, uh, say to people, here's the album.
4: Would you consider yourself a social, social creature at the best of times? Do you uh, have a community of musicians, aside from your family, obviously, and those you work with, that you would see regularly and party with?
8: Yes, I think there's, again, two parts of me, one that's a very social beast, and the other side of me is probably very quiet and and likes to work alone, and in fact can't really work if there's more than a few people around.
4: Do you have uh, special work habits that you subscribe to? You seem like a very disciplined artist, just judging by your work. Uh, Do you have a special place you go to to work, a certain environment, At certain hours, do you do that?
8: I think the studio has become that disciplined place that I can go to now. It used to be uh, my music room, wherever I had the piano. And um, I think it's helped me tremendously to actually have an environment where I can go to, to work. It just makes it that much easier for me to concentrate.
4: Yeah, and do you set hours that you go there?
8: Um, not actually set hours. It depends how I feel. But normally I'll go there and work for a certain amount each day, depending on how well the ideas are coming through. Um, so it depends. You
1: know. I had a bit of a crush on Kate. Who didn't? Who didn't. And and I know that, you know, most people just know her from Running Up That Hill, which is probably her only song to hit the top 40 charts. Uh, Unless you, of course, count Don't Give Up with Peter Gabriel. Mm -hmm. Oh, and um, Games Without Frontiers. She was in. The, she was the high voice in Games Without Frontiers, singing "Je Sans Frontier." Not she's so funky, or she's so popular, <laughs> but that's her voice on that too. Um, but you know those early songs like Wuthering Heights, mm. just fantastic, and a real theatrical performer um,
0: uh, that I really miss. You know, it's funny you talk about having a crush on Kate Bush. <laughs> she was the interview I think of all the ones I ever did in the entire time I was at Much. That more people were fascinated by, were excited before it happened, and afterwards, like, well, how did it go? <laughs> what was she like? What was she wearing? Was she nice? You know, but just all the questions that people tend to ask, you know. And it was like the hem of the garment. I mean, I'd yes. been there and shaking yes. her hand, and
1: they wanted to touch you because you had touched exactly. her. Exactly.
0: Yes. yes. There was an article uh, in the UK uh, around the time that said there were ghosts. <laughs> present for the the shooting of the video of Cloud Busting. I don't Mm -hmm. know if you remember that video. I sure do, and I remember the famous movie star that was in that who played her father. Mm -hmm. Do you? Of course I do, but she also talks about that in this next segment. And she talks about the inspiration. And it's funny because when I was trying to find out her working techniques and inspirations, she was very nice and very warm, but not so forthcoming about details. And in this quote, she reveals a lot about the origins of the song. And, and for the video as well.
8: well. As far as I know, there were no ghosts present there, but there were lots of human beings and a particularly good actor called Donald Sutherland. Of
4: course, a well-known Canadian actor as well. Absolutely, yeah. Yes. So tell us about the video. What were you trying to accomplish?
8: I really wanted it to be a short piece of film. I didn't want it to be seen as a promotional clip or even a video, but as a film. And um, part of that idea was having a, an actor, hopefully a great actor, that would play the part of the father and myself playing... The part of the young boy and the song was inspired by a book that's all about a very special relationship between um, the guy that wrote the book as a child and his father. His father was a very respected psychoanalyst psychiatrist and had lots of theories on life energy and also had this machine called a cloudbuster that could make it rain and together they'd go out into the, the dry desert and um, make it rain and this was a very magical moment for the child.
4: What book is that?
8: It's called A Book of Dreams and the man that wrote it is called Peter Reich and unfortunately the the peak of the book Is that his father's arrested his beliefs were considered outrageous people afraid of things they didn't know um, spe- especially at that time um, And it was very very hard for the child to cope without his father and um, In some ways the connection with rain for him every time it rains he thinks of his father so it's uh, It's a positive way of him coping without
1: him. So we're talking to Kate Bush, and Christopher, you were telling me a quote where she said, and this is a quote, The artist is like a magpie picking out little bits of gold and storing them away to use later. So does Kate really still feel that way in this interview?
8: (laughs) I think the whole process is like that. You're continually looking for lyrical ideas, musical inspirations, people that would be good to work with, people that you want to involve in your work. Uh, I think all the time you have to keep looking and listening because it's that accumulation of things that all your ideas and your work depends on.
4: What are you looking at and listening to these days?
8: Um, Well, at the moment, I'm caught in the middle of a big promotional trip that uh, that is interesting for me. I'm getting a great deal of feedback from people, which is incredibly rewarding. And also, I suppose, one positive side of it is it makes you think about areas of yourself and your music that you wouldn't do unless people were asking you these questions.
1: Okay, is it still okay for me to to admit once again that I'm still vaguely in love with Kate Bush after all these years? (laughs) (laughs)
0: yes it's all right
1: terrific and i love the way her mind works i love just the artiste that's deep inside of that woman like she is fantastic and just how her imagination uh was set off by that book and then she creates this song out of it and uh, that hounds of
0: love album was fantastic and she's just a pillar of artistic strength and vision yes i really admire her yeah me too
1: we're going to keep moving on here because we're going to talk about kind of some of the biggest songs of all time. And this is another Canadian, and it's a Canadian you know very well,
0: Christopher. And his name is Dan Hill. Dan is a terrific guy and a wonderful singer and mm-hmm. songwriter. I, I remember I saw him first at the um, Riverboat Coffee House when I was uh, a dishwasher. <laughs> and he was a rising star because he was being managed by Bernie Finkelstein whose partner uh, Bernie Feeler uh, managed the riverboat i remember Dan getting up on stage with his bare feet <laughs> 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 and he had this uh, coterie of young women who were following him around who were wow. early on very serious Dan Hill fans wow Yeah. okay he he had it even yes. then
1: and of course, Dan is probably best known for the song "Sometimes When We Touch," which was a big, a big hit ac- across North America, a huge hit. Uh, a little bit on the softer side that song was, um, but he tells a terrific story about how that song came to be. Well, he's
6: a he happened to be with the same publishing company as myself, you know, which is ATV in the states, and some people in that publishing company inspired the collaboration. They just said that Barry was one of their favorite melody writers and I was one of their favorite lyric writers and I was very kind of cautious of a creative blind date, so to speak, you know, the idea of of just sort of putting us together as a uh, computer program almost well, it didn't really appeal to me, but we just, uh, there was something to do with our energy level that fed into each other very, very well and uh, the first song we wrote was Sometimes When We Touch, which more or less I guess speaks for itself, but... There was just something very natural that seemed to happen when the two of us got together and wrote a song, and uh, it
1: also, you know, had a very strong effect on my own melody writing after I I left Barry and, and continued to write on my own. There you go. So, so wow, he teams up with Barry Man. That's awesome. And you
0: know who Barry is, right? Right. He Barry was, Man, Cynthia Weil, Cynthia Weil,
1: and uh, and they they're part of the
0: story of the Carol King musical. I don't know if you've seen that. And well, yes, if you, you look up that, their credits, yeah, I mean they're they're Brill Building originals, right. and they wrote a lot of hit songs. Mm-hmm. But here I, here's a weird little, sorry, off the side of it. Um, I was doing a songwriting, they do these things called songwriting camps, and actually it was Miles Copeland, Stewart's brother, that started this phenomenon, because oh. he, he has a castle in the south of France, and he would invite all of his artists and writers that were signed to his label and publishing company, and then bring in people like Carole King to write with them in this beautiful environment. Anyway, the whole camp idea has sort of continued on from then. Sure, and I was doing one, and Dan was one of the writers as well. We were sitting having lunch together, and there was a few other people around. I don't know how he got to it, but he was talking about sometimes when we touched, and he said, "Well, you know, I actually went to Barry, and I had my own melody for that song, but I didn't tell him because he didn't. He wanted Barry to see it as a fresh piece of lyric. Right, right. And he said, I said, oh." Can you play it for us? He's like, sure. So he plays an entirely different version of the song, top to bottom. So
1: it doesn't, like, it's not... So if we get him
0: on the show, I'm
1: bringing a guitar. That's a great idea, and I'm going to hold you to that. Okay, time now to wrap things up with our final segment, The Wisdom of Dave. With David Lee Roth.
2: Now that Edward has a little studio in his backyard, we have even more excuse not to accomplish anything. You know, we can sit around, and you know, people don't understand. You know, life uh, does in fact get much easier. The more money you make, the more popular the band becomes, and so forth. You have a lot more excuses for not accomplishing anything. Like for instance, now we have 16 and 24 track machines that don't work today, so we just better sit around and discuss it. And now we have guitar roadies and drum roadies and bass roadies who don't show up. It's not just the guitar player and the bass player anymore who doesn't show up to rehearsal or anything. It's the guitar roadie and the bass roadie. And, of course, if they don't show up, then we have another excuse to sit around and talk about cars.
1: <laughs> okay, so there you go. <laughs> There's Dave. <sighs> That just sends me off on my day in great form. And his wise words as we finish off Famous Lost Words. This episode, as always, was produced by Adam
0: Karsh. I'm Tom Jokic. I'm Christopher Ward. And don't forget you can hear every episode archived on the iHeartRadio podcast app.